a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, every Tuesday we have the opportunity to visit with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, how are you today? Well, ding dong, the pouch is gone. That's some good news. Actually, I, I have to admit, when I heard the news yesterday that Dr. Fauci has announced he'll be retiring at the end of the year, that was my first thought was, okay, I can't wait to get Eric's reaction. It sounds like uh, you're like me. Not a moment too soon. Well, you know, the only thing is that weaponized hypochondria hasn't gone into remission, unfortunately. So even though the man who is probably most responsible um, for calling that into existence is departing, we still have to deal with the poisonous legacy that he's left us. Yep. And, you know, I keep getting asked this question, and I don't know if people are asking you, but will there ever be accountability for, for Dr. Fauci? Or is he going to slip on this one and slide on this one, uh, being that well, he's, he's kind of slimy? If the Republican Party, you know, I don't, I don't want to disparage all Republicans because not all Republicans are like this, but Mitch Republicanism, as in Mitch McConnell Republicanism, establishment Republicans, if they're the ones who are the determinative factor, I think nothing will happen because nothing ever happens with those people in charge of the levers of power. All they want is to keep their hands on the levers of power. And I think that many of them are just as compromised as their supposed opponents on the left. Uh, with regard to being shills for the big pharmaceutical cartels and these other corporations that have acquired a chokehold over our political system. Yeah, it was interesting, too, in the in the story that I saw yesterday, uh, Fauci's uh, stepping down was also accompanied by, I'm ready to move on to the next phase in my career, which, I mean, the guy's 85 years old. What exactly is the next phase in his career? I mean, he's getting paid $325,000 a year for the rest of his life as part of his retirement. Uh, Do you suppose he'll just uh, come right out and uh, start to disclose some of the ties to these drug companies? Is he going to become a lobbyist or something? Well, yeah, that's just it. More is never enough for these people, is it? Uh, I foresee book deals uh, for books that he didn't write but has his name on it that are peddled by these big corporate publishing houses and shilled for by the media. I foresee him getting paid a lot of money to stand up in front of an audience somewhere and give a teleprompted speech because – they're not like us, you know, for you and I having even one year's worth of Mafauci money, you know, $400,000 to say, you know, that's great. You know, I'm pretty much done. I can now just enjoy my life and take care of my family and uh, pursue things that are of interest to me. But the things that Fauci and people like him are interested in is money, power and celebrity, not necessarily in that hierarchy. Well, I'm I'm encouraged that, that Fauci is bowing out. I, and I'm hoping, there's a part of me that's hoping that he's doing this because he realizes the Nuremberg 2.0 trials are on their way and he's going to have a date with the docket. But uh, as you mentioned, Eric, you know, it seems like the COVID mania, as much as, as it appears to be waning, it's not gone. And this is not a time to, to let our guard down, is it? No, it isn't. And the fundamental institutions that uh, were responsible for our suffering for low these almost three years ongoing, they still exist. And uh, they could be reactivated at any moment. There hasn't been a general repudiation. Now, one thing that I have been encouraged by is Governor DeSantis in Florida, who has repudiated a lot of this and has even gone farther and publicly said the other day that people who have been injured 
by these quack scenes, and in particular, people who have been forced to take them effectively. You know, told that you can't have your job anymore, can't feed yourself, you're going to starve uh, unless you submit to being injected with our, our drugs. But those people should have the option of being able to pursue damages in civil court, and I think that's wonderful. So that's a, a sign of something good, and I hope that spreads. I do as well. And I, I know it sounds like, well, you're just lusting for some vengeance here, but I just can't get out of my mind. A year ago, there were people very openly advocating for, we have to do everything we can to make the unvaccinated so miserable, they have no choice but to bend the knee and do what everybody else is doing. Yeah, and you raise a very important point. This is not about vengeance at all. This is about justice, and the distinction is very important. Uh, when we're talking about people who have been malicious and people who are uh, who have done things not because they were well-intended but acted on incorrect information, just made a mistake, that's human. We all do that. Uh, when you do that, you apologize, may culpa, you make up for it. These people haven't done anything of the kind. Uh, in fact, Fauci continues to be unapologetic about everything that he did and all of the damage that he caused. So it's not about vengeance. It's about justice. Uh, it's not about vengeance when somebody runs a red light drunk and kills your family. You're not looking for vengeance. You're looking for some degree of accountability to make up for the damage that's been caused. And that's the issue here. Yep. It's it's going to be interesting, too, to see if we actually start to see greater awareness now that the CDC has backed off on making a distinction between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated are we going to start to hear a little bit more about all of these cases of uh, otherwise healthy adults suddenly having heart problems or dropping dead and of course the one thing we can't suggest is that it might be related in any way to the vaccine mm-hmm. well i think we can't help but notice it you know even if cnn at all are not reporting it yet it's getting really hard to shove this this buffalo under the rug, isn't it? Uh, you know, it's not just a matter of cruising the internet and uh, seeing uh, and reading these stories. Uh, you know, people are having these these sorts of things hit close to home when it's somebody that they know. I have got uh, numerous people on my website, for example, who have related stories of people that they personally know, family members and friends who have been hurt by this vaccine. I have a friend who was hurt by a vaccine. So this sort of thing is propagating and spreading, and it's just impossible for them to continue to suppress it, I think. Well, leave it to the Babylon Bee to come up with uh, the, the perfect headline for the times we're in. New study shows an alarming link between being a conspiracy theorist and not having myocarditis. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. This whole thing needs to be turned around. You remember when they called us hesitant? Yes. You know, those of us who wanted to do, wanted to practice due diligence and who said, well, wait a minute, you know, you're talking about putting something into my body. I'd really like to know more about it. It's got nothing to do with hesitancy. It's got to do with, hey, I, I need to know more before I, I do something that could potentially hurt me. Nobody would say, oh, you're hesitant if you just don't go out to the shadiest used car lot and, and just agree to buy whatever car the, the greasy salesman says, hey, here you go. It's a cream puff. You'll love it. Just buy it. Yep. Well... Like you, I'm going to continue to do my part to to make normalcy normal again. But I I just can't, I can't get over how sweet it feels to see the CDC walking back, you know, their recommendations. Although you notice they they've kind of held back on on lifting the idea that masks, you know, shouldn't shouldn't be an ever present part of our society. Well, they're still enforcing it. For example, if you go to a court, you know, you know let's say that you are involved in litigation, you know, if you're called to jury duty or something. Pretty much all the courts still require people to put on that obscene rag. Uh, and depending on where you go around the country, you'll still see a lot of it. So it has not gone away. It hasn't gone away in terms of voluntary 
wearing of it, and it hasn't gone away in terms of essentially having to wear it. You know, if you're a litigant in a case, if you're getting divorced, if you're, uh, you know, getting sued, if you've been charged with a crime, whatever it happens to be, you still have to don the holy rag. Absolutely. Well, there there is some good news, and and the good news is the the mask is starting to slip. Now uh, we're going to find out, you know, how far people are willing to go in in terms of reclaiming you know, what's left of their freedoms. Like you, I want to see mm-hmm. people made whole, especially business owners who were, you know, targeted for, for having their businesses open when there was some kind of a lockdown. And the gaslighting, Eric, the, how many yeah. how many times have you heard public officials say, what, we never really locked down? That was a figment of your imagination. Yeah, just like now, the new narrative is, uh, they, they claim, these people, we never said that the vaccines will provide immunity. They just help to lessen the symptoms. You know about this? And it's, it's disgusting beyond belief because, you know what, I've got a memory, and better than that, I've actually kept records. And I remember uh, Biden and Fauci saying, if you take the shot, you won't get virus. You right. won't get sick. Right. You know, remember that? Oh, yeah. And, and, and it's, just an, it's just a brazen, outright lie. And now they're trying to shift the discussion to the vaccines, lessen the severity of the sickness, and that's how you keep the hospitals from overflowing. And it's, it's, it's a complete change in the, the whole story. And one wonders why anybody continues to believe these people. You know, they lied to you about the, the, the vaccine providing immunity. They lied about that. So why the hell should anybody listen to them when they say, oh, we're take the vaccine and it'll lessen the severity of the symptoms. Really, how? Prove it. Show me. And even if it's true, so what? You can't go around telling people that they have to take some kind of a drug like uh, that, that's a palliative that somehow makes them feel better after they get a sickness and which doesn't prevent them from spreading a sickness. You know, when we come back from our break here in just a few moments, um, let's talk about how this affects Trump, because it may sound like, well, you're just picking on the Biden administration mm-hmm. and Dr. Fauci. But uh, you had a recent column that points out mm-hmm. if there's if there's someone who owes us a mea culpa, Trump is one of those people. And, and that's yeah. not you know, you're not just bashing on him. Um, he made some pretty bad judgment calls early on and yeah. probably would be helped sure. if, if he would if he would own up to it. Well, let's let's hit the pause button there. We've got to take a very quick break again. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. I've got a link in the show notes if you want to go visit his website. Be well worth your while. You'll find tons of interesting reading material, lots of great uh, comments that follow each article as well. And we'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Eric, you had a, a great article just a few days ago about Orange Apologia. Mm-hmm. And and you mentioned uh, Alex Jones, who I know is he's yeah. kind of a, a polarizing figure to some people. But uh, boy, talk about uh, an all-out effort to silence somebody! I'd say Alex Jones mm-hmm. may be the most silenced or attempted to be silenced individual that I can think of. Yeah, me also. And uh, what we're talking about here is him coming out the other day and urging the Orange Man to walk back uh, his ongoing endorsement of the vaccines. Uh, which I think is a crucible moment for him um, and for us, frankly. Uh, I think that at this point, I cannot fathom why the orange man continues 
to claim personal credit for having saved millions of lives with these vaccines, which he is has got to know uh, have done no such thing, and in fact uh, have caused unprecedented harm, including the deaths of thousands of people, not to mention all of the debilitating and lifelong injuries, including to young people who should never have had these problems. And for him to continue to do that, it's appalling. Uh, I also think there's a potential. Uh, some of my readers pointed this out that, uh, you know, you can read this in a number of ways. And one is that he has been uh, set up to fall for this. You know, when, when the truth about these quack scenes comes out and, and is, is endorsed as the truth by Pravda Media, who's going to take the fall for it? Well, it'll be the orange man, won't it? And, you know, he'll have been set up just like a domino and then kicked over. But regardless, I, I'm just at this point tired of listening to, to anybody talk about how wonderful the vaccines are. And for him to do it is inexcusable at this point, at least in my judgment. No, I, I would agree. And I have to wonder, is it, you know, is it just pride? Because he was really big on banging the drum. I got this through in no time at all. I'm yeah. the one who's responsible. I saved you. And yeah, mm-hmm. reconsider, Donald. <laughs> that's not the Yeah, and you know, that brings up cap. a related point. That brings up a related point. You know, people have, I think, rightly criticized him for being an egomaniac, which is another way of saying a narcissist. And he's somebody who apparently is not capable of humbling himself when he has made a mistake and saying, yeah, you know what? Uh, I was wrong. I deeply regret it. And uh, let's see what we can do to make it right. I think if he were to do that, he might recover some standing, particularly with people like me who want to hear that. You know, I, I want to hear that he's a human being and not, uh, not some maniac who thinks everything is about him and that he has to have a holy nimbus behind him. And our job is simply to worship him because he's the orange man. Right. You know, Eric, last time we talked, I think we we had briefly touched on um, how Chrysler and Dodge were getting ready to do away with uh, the last yeah. of the V8 interceptors. And mm-hmm. I can't remember where I heard this. I just caught this story in passing in the last few days. But it sounds like another, and I, think, I want to say a European car manufacturer, has announced they will no longer be taking any orders for internal combustion vehicles um, like in, within the next two years. I'd like to mm-hmm. get you, get your reaction. It's the push for electric vehicles is uh, is growing, and and I'd love to yeah. to get your thoughts on uh, what that means for those of us who still value our personal autonomy. Well, you know, these car companies are kind of caught between the proverbial rock and the hard place. It's not so much they're deciding to stop making other than electric cars; it's that they essentially have no choice but to make other than electric cars because of the regulatory regime that's making it impossible from a regulatory point of view to continue to build them. It's really diabolically clever. You know, these governments, the United States government, the federal government, the governments in European countries uh, haven't actually come out and said, you know, you can't build these cars. It's illegal for you to sell a car with a combustion engine. Oh no, you can build them if you comply with these impossible to comply with regulations, right? So, you know, from a technical point of view and from an economic point of view, you know, you, you have to build a car that people can afford to buy, right? You know, so if you figure out a way to make it clean according to the regulations, but the thing costs a hundred thousand dollars, well, nobody's going to buy it. You know, it's just it's just simple economics. So that's where we're headed, and this whole push, this whole effort, isn't so much about uh, getting people into electric cars. It's about getting most people out of cars. Period. Wow, that's a, that's a scary thought. But then again, you know, there's a reason I live out in the hinterlands where. You know, I still have some freedom of movement and a bus doesn't come by on a regular ske- you know, schedule. So, uh, but that, to me, that's half the charm of, you know, being out there uh, well, in a more well, sure. rural setting. 
keep in mind, these are scary people. I know, you know, when I make a comment like the one that I just made about getting people, most people out of cars, it comes across perhaps as a little strident and, oh, you know, he's exaggerating, he's just being hysterical. But think about what's happened over the past three years about how people were forced, some people, uh, small business people, were first forced to close their shops, their gyms, their stores uh, for the sake of Corona. Uh, and the way people were treated for not putting on a face diaper and not injecting these experimental drugs into their bodies. These are the kinds of people that we're dealing with, and they're absolutely capable of doing the things that we're talking about. And they don't like the personally owned car precisely because it lets people like you and me live out in the country or wherever we like, uh, and it gives us mobility and freedom. They don't want that. They want everybody consolidated, herded, uh, and under their control. And this electric car thing will greatly facilitate that. I wish I could remember who had made this observation. I think I saw it on Twitter a couple of days ago. But it was someone holding forth on, well, why do all these people live out there in the in the rural areas anyway? And uh, the answer mm-hmm. that, that they gave was, well, what we need to do then is we need to incentivize moving them into the population centers where they can enjoy the kind of life that the rest of us enjoy. And it's like, I don't think mm-hmm. they quite get the yeah. picture of why people live in rural areas in the first place. Yeah, there's many facets to this, and I think one of them is this kind of sadistic resentment of people who have managed to achieve a life that's not too dissimilar from the life of very affluent people. And what I mean by that is, okay, so you own a single-family house, and you have some land, even a couple of acres of land, let's say, and you own a couple of cars. You know, there's not that much distinction between that kind of a lifestyle and somebody who lives in a much bigger, much fancier house and has bigger and fancier cars, is it? You know, so I think it's not merely that the wealth as such is desirable. What's desirable is that we don't have wealth so as to recreate the feudal system where there, there's the lord in the castle who has everything and there's the serfs who have nothing who tend the land. Wow. All I know is... I want to be able to gather eggs for my chickens and grow my own garden and barter with my neighbors. And we do. We have a little farmer's market right down the street from us. It happens every Saturday. And you know what? In, in return for that, I have to put up with the smell of, of cow manure. I have a dairy that's uh, about uh, half a mile away from here that occasionally the wind comes through. I'm totally okay with that. I don't need the blessings of being packed into apartment buildings and riding public transportation everywhere. The take-home point, I think, is that we have every bit the same amount of right to live as these rich elitists do, and that's a non-negotiable point. And I think it's time that we push back against these arrogant, insolent people. The other day I was reading something about uh, Jennifer Granholm, the Secretary of Energy, who was just kind of like in a Marie Antoinette fashion, blithely telling people, oh, are you just, you know, if you're, if you're you're having trouble making ends meet, go out and buy some new energy-efficient green appliances. Did you catch that? Oh, man. I, I hadn't heard you know, that, but it doesn't surprise me. Just like Buttigieg, you know, the uh, the Secretary of Transportation, you know, who has about as much business being Secretary of Transportation as I have being in the NBA. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, he tells people, oh, are you worried about paying four bucks a gallon for gas? Go out and buy a $50,000 electric car. That'll fix your wagon. Yeah, it just, this whole thing has this centrally planned command and control feel to it that is just, I don't know, it's just antithetical to, to anything that I find that I could agree to. Yes, and again, I, you know, I don't mean to harp on this too much, but it's about, uh, you know, a different set of rules. You know, these people, they're not going to be the ones that are giving up their affluent lifestyle and all of the comforts 
of modernity. They want us to give them up. You know, we're not seeing Al Gore and Leonardo DiCaprio and all these other people moving into a little 800-square-foot apartment somewhere, are we? They're not taking the bus, are they? They're not riding the bike, are they? Those are for us, the little people, as Leona Helmsley used to call us. Wow. That's a name I haven't heard in a while, but it's also a perfect example. (laughs) Eric, (laughs) thank you so much for being my guest. Great, as always, to visit with you. Thank you. I appreciate having me on. Okay, we'll take a quick break. I'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I am so grateful for Garage Door Pros for being one of my sponsors. You'll notice I have a very limited number of sponsors on this program. And part of the reason for that is because I don't want to spend 90% of my time just doing advertising when uh, when there are important things to, to share with you. So these sponsors have stepped up and made it possible for me to talk about the things that I talk about, to host the guests that I have on this program, and they make it possible. They keep me on the air, and I so appreciate that. Garage Door Pros, serving St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Colorado City, down in that little south- southwest corner of Utah. These are your go-to guys. If you're looking for a local company to install, service, and repair garage doors. And we're talking made in America garage doors, quick response, much faster lead time that other companies can give you, and of course, commercial as well as residential service. If you need some more information, go to garagedoorproservices.com. They'll tell you everything you need to know. Well, it's kind of nice to see some vindication finally arriving for all those brave souls out there who were the voices of reason during the COVID lockdown mania. And, I mean, look, guys like Dr. Scott Atlas, is, uh, that's just one of, of many medical doctors who spoke up at considerable risk. And, man, they were officially gone after, I think, uh, Fauci and what was the guy's name? Francis from the National Institutes of Health. These are the ones that to, the, to these two gentlemen were talking about. We need a fast and decisive takedown, you know, of, uh, of these individuals who are questioning the government narrative. And yet here we are. Now, a couple of years later, or a year later, and the CDC miraculously has seen the light and changed its tune. And isn't it interesting, too, how now they're talking about, wow, this is a terrible tragedy, and yes, things apparently may have gone wrong. We're going to need more money and more power. That's typical of how government operates. I've got a great article here from Caitlin Richardson, which explains how the CDC waited until the mandate damage was done before it backtracked on its COVID response. And in its updated guidelines, the CDC is now embracing positions it once deemed misinformation, but of course the damage from its COVID mandates are already done. Caitlin Richardson says, after thousands of Americans already faced job losses and ruined livelihoods over vaccine mandates and regulations, the CDC is backtracking on its COVID-19 guidelines. Now, the agency released uh, revised guidelines last week, which put an emphasis on individuals assessing their own risk, finally catching up to how most Americans have been approaching the virus since the summer of 2020. Per the update, those exposed to COVID no longer need to quarantine. 
Mass screening of healthy asymptomatic individuals is no longer recommended and distinctions between vaccinated and unvaccinated will no longer be made, signaling a massive shift away from the previous emphasis on vaccine efficacy. That is a huge one. Now, she says the CDC's wording also acknowledges the reality of natural immunity and breakthrough infections. These are positions not long ago deemed misinformation punishable by deplatforming on social media. This is what the CDC actually had to say. CDC's COVID-19 prevention recommendations no longer differentiate between or differentiate rather based on a person's vaccination status because breakthrough infections occur, though they are generally mild. And persons who have had COVID-19 but are not vaccinated have some degree of protection against severe illness from their previous infection. So this begs the question, why the change? Well, the virus is here to stay, CDC epidemiologist Greta Massetti said during a news briefing on the recommendations. Though not quite admitting wrong, the change, updated guidelines say, comes from evolving science and context. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky did say last Wednesday that the agency plans to make more improvements to its operations as it did not reliably meet expectations in response to COVID-19. An external review of the agency initiated in April suggested the CDC share scientific findings and data faster and be transparent about the current the agent's, uh, agency's current level of understanding. I think one of the bigger things they could do is just not engage in politicized health care. I mean, for crying out loud, they were flip-flopping constantly on guidelines, with, which, of course, has taken their credibility down with less than half the, American inst- the, half the American public saying that they trust the institution. And if you think about it, the track record makes sense. I mean, cloth masks worked. No, no, they don't. Vaccinated individuals don't need to mask. Yes, yes, they do. Vaccines prevented the spread. No, no, they didn't. And worse, the CDC's inconsistent uns- unscientific guidelines provided the justification for mandates that threatened the jobs of thousands of workers. Now, see, there's a part of me that wants to believe that this, this little uh, blip in history, this bad period of judgment, is somehow past us, but it's not. And I appreciate a listener who sent me some convention guidelines for a convention taking place, uh, I, I assume this is in the very near future, in Vegas. Holy cow. You have to be tested right there at the venue or tested, you know, you have a test within 72 hours of attending. You have to show your vaccination. Everybody's got to be masked everywhere. There's, you know, sanitizer dispensers everywhere. They're still playing the game. They're still playing this as if, oh, yes, we are completely on lockdown. And this is, you know, keeping everybody socially distanced and what have you. And you have to wonder, or at least I wonder, maybe maybe nobody else does. Maybe everybody else is, is cool with this. Why keep the illusion going? See, the the truth of the matter is, there is exactly as much COVID going around now as there was two years ago. It's been here. It's been circulating through the population. It still is there in abundance. It's just that the people who are dealing with it right now are experiencing milder and milder versions, which is what happens as the virus goes endemic. But it's also that the media focus has shifted. Not as much fear, not as many blood red, you know, body count numbers up on the screen every hour, every minute to remind us of this terrible pandemic that we're in. Life seems pretty normal. 
kind of makes you wonder, when are people going to go back to some degree of normalcy? And I think for some people, the answer is sadly they won't. They never can. I think their minds have been broken by what was done to us. Let's go back to uh, let's go back to uh, this this article here from uh, uh, Caitlin Richardson. She says uh, mandates affected uh, recruitment in the military as well as uh, the mandates affecting people's uh, you know job prospects. Uh, particularly critical industries like healthcare. Now hospitals are facing staff shortages, staffing crises, and shortages nationwide, exacerbated by vaccine requirements. And even people with medical education backgrounds, this was, wasn't this interesting. They were unable to challenge the authoritative rulings of the CDC. They were effectively found out, isolated, and silenced, or at least deplatformed. Experts like Aaron Curiati. Ethics and Public Policy Center fellow and previous director of the medical ethics program at UCI Health, put their careers in jeopardy by speaking up. And after Cariotti argued in a lawsuit that natural immunity should be seen as equal to vaccination, oh yeah, that's when the University of California, Irvine, fired him for failure to comply with the, with the mandate. Now, in a recent Substack post relating to the CDC's new guidance, he says he anticipates winning in court, and I hope he does. But listen to this message, and if you're one of those people who had to stand up, whether you're a medical expert or not, there's some some great truth here. Aaron Curiati says, do the right thing even when it's unpopular. Stand by your convictions even when you appear foolish to many. When the other side retaliates, don't flinch. Be patient. Bide your time. Eventually the truth will will out, so play the long game. That's certainly how this one came, came together, didn't it? And look at what's happening now with our military. They're cutting uh, Army National Guard soldiers and Reserve soldiers from duties and benefits. Many of them are being discharged for refusing to, to take the vaccination. And now these mandates have affected recruitment. U.S. Army is expecting to come up short of its recruiting goals by nearly 40,000 troops over the next couple of years. In fact, if I'm reading this correctly, and I saw this article the other day, every single branch of the U.S. military is going to miss its recruiting goals for this year. Pretty crazy stuff. What's next? Are we going to reinstate the draft? Man, I hope not. Caitlin Richardson says, look, it's good that the CDC is finally acknowledging the truth. But it's by no means clear that this is going to fix the numerous problems its misguided decisions created. Whether workers fired over what turns out to be an entirely rational position will be compensated or rehired, well, that remains a pressing question. But the bottom line is the damage brought by the CDC cannot be so quickly forgotten. And again, I have to point out it's not a matter of revenge. It's a matter of how do we prevent this from happening again? How can we send the message that this cannot be tolerated? I know it makes some people very nervous when you hear, well, we need to have trials, like Nuremberg-style trials. Frankly, I think I would support that, because we cannot let this happen again. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hi, welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout out here to HSLAmmo.com and also LifesavingFood.com. If you click on my sponsor links in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, you will find links to these sponsors as well as others, including uh, MonticelloCollege.org and GarageDoorProServices.com. But uh, please, take a good look at these uh, sponsors. If you have need of their service or their product, I would ask you to consider doing business with them. Let them know that their message reached your ears. So two stories I want to share in this segment This one is a heavy one, but I'm mostly just going to refer you to the article, which is included in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Would you know what to do to survive a famine? I know, I'm like you. I'll just run down to Costco, same as ever, and stock up on what I need until that famine is over. And I think that's how a lot of us kind of envision it. Well, you know, I'm sure if there was a famine or some kind of shortage was to come, we would all recognize it for what it is. You know, the media would tell us about it, of course. They're on our side. They'd tell us if politicians were doing something that wasn't in our interest. Yeah, sorry, that was a little heavy on the sarcasm, but bottom line is you need to understand what a famine is, historically, how have they come about, Before you can really start planning, what can I do about it? And I have an article here from Milan Adams. This is a fairly long article. It's from prepgroup.home.blog. How to survive a famine. And in this, you get some good historical background, as well as some of the different reasons why famine could come about. He talks about how hungry people group up how you should have stocks of water and food to combat famine, um, what modern-day famine would look like, where it might originate, what it takes to survive a famine, by the way, with some really good real-world examples like North Korea, growing food during a famine, becoming a survivor, hunting, trapping, fishing, small mammals, birds, snakes, and insects on the menu, Like I say, it's kind of a heavy topic, and it's probably going to be unsettling for most people, simply because we take for granted so much how easy it is to access the food that we eat. And I don't want to believe that a day could come when that could be interrupted, but in my heart, I know it could happen. So I'd rather be prepared. I'd rather have a heads up on what kind of things can you do. This article is a great place to start especially from giving some good historical background on how economic collapse can lead to other kinds of catastrophes, including food shortages. It's also severe drought or weather, natural disasters, or even a man-made catastrophe like an EMP. Anybody's ever read the uh, One Second After book series? Holy cow. Definitely something to, to, to make you think. Okay, so that's that's the downer part. Uh, again, you're not going to be depressed. It's not like you're going to walk around with your, your head in your hands all day for the next couple of days after reading this. But you'll definitely have a, a broader perspective from which to assess what's going on around us and hopefully you know, make whatever plans or adjustments you need to make in your own personal preparedness plans. By the way, if I can be so bold as to say this, I've been a big fan of preparedness, personal preparedness, for many, many years. But over that time, I have come to realize that without God's help, none of it's going to succeed. You can't 
be physically prepared for every single possibility that could happen. It's just not possible. So a big part of any plan for being prepared, in my opinion, should include a healthy reliance upon divine providence and partnership with God to see that your needs are being met and to, uh, to get the guidance that you need. All right, thus endeth the sermon. Going to move on here. Typically, when someone starts talking about uh, anything related to gullibility, hey, did you know they took gullibility out of the dictionary? Really? Well, I want to see. <laughs> you got to be careful. Anytime that word comes up, there's almost always a joke. I actually had a co-host I made so angry one day, she literally threw a pen at me, probably not thinking of, you know, the, the consequences. She really was mad. But uh, I had simply told her, you know, if you say the word orange slow enough, it sounds like you're saying, actually, I said, if you say the word gullible slow enough, it sounds like you're saying orange. She was like, no way. No, that's not possible. I would really give it a try. And on the air, she's a gullible. I guess my laughter tipped her off to the fact that it was a big joke, which did not go well. Nonetheless, I wanted to share with you this article from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. Good reading is the cure for gullibility. She says, the other day, a friend of mine posted on social media a picture of her three children sitting in the living room, each with a nose in a book. Now, she was having a proud mom moment, noting that she couldn't believe her days had finally come, the days had finally come, rather, when all her children were able to read on their own and they were actually doing it. Now the trick is to keep those kids reading into adulthood. But Annie Holmquist says that may be harder than it sounds. According to a Pew Research poll from 2021, 23% of American adults didn't read a book in the previous year. Now that number gets a little bit better in a 2022 Gallup poll, which shows only 17% of Americans say they didn't read a book in the preceding year. However, the poll also shows the number of the average number of books read by Americans had dropped drastically between 2016 and 2021. So given the stagnating performance numbers in America's schools, Annie Holmquist says that statistic really shouldn't surprise us. The nation's report card currently places 8th grade reading proficiency at 32%, which means that more than two-thirds of schools of students rather heading into high school can't read proficiently. If America's students aren't learning to read very well when they're young, why would we expect them to read as adults? She says such deficiencies in literacy are alarming, not only for the state of our children, but also for the state of the nation that some of those children will one day lead. Calls for more money to remedy this situation will undoubtedly break forth, but she says those calls are simply another step in the vicious cycle we know as the education system. 20th century journalist Malcolm Muggeridge explained the cycle in an essay called The Great Liberal Death Wish. Here's how he put it, quote, There was, it seemed to me, a built-in propensity in this liberal worldview whereby the opposite of what was intended came to pass. Take the case with education. Education was the great mumbo-jumbo in progress, the assumption being that educating people would make them grow better and better and more and more objective and intelligent. Actually, as more money is spent on education, illiteracy is increasing. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if it didn't end up with virtually the whole revenue of Western countries being spent on education and a condition of almost total illiteracy resulting from there. It's quite on the cards. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says, Muggridge is likely right that education spending will continue to rise despite poor results. 
But it's those poor results that should give us pause. Is it possible that the failure of the education system is actually purposeful? 20th century author and thinker Albert J. Nock thought it was. Nock wrote, Our system was founded in all good faith that universal elementary education would make a citizenry more intelligent, whereas most obviously it has done nothing of the kind. After students reached middle school age, Nock explains, Education can no longer be developed, but it can regulate what intelligence one has. But Annie Holmquist notes the education system doesn't regulate at a high academic level. It regulates at a low one. She says, Nock wrote, if it, had not, if it had done nothing to raise the general level of intelligence, it had succeeded in making our citizenry much more easily gullible. Describing the education system as one that conditions a child to take as true whatever he read in his school books or whatever his teachers told him eventually bowing to the crude authoritarian or fetishistic spirit which one sees most highly developed, perhaps, in the habitual reader of newspapers. He has no need, no incentive to expand his mind through books, whether from authors who hold similar mindsets or those who hold views directly opposite to his own. And so, Annie Holmquist says, we find ourselves with a population that neither reads nor thinks, but simply does whatever authorities and media outlets say to do. Now, even as we descend into more and more into such a state, she says, there is still hope. There's a segment of the school-age population receiving an education that develops a love for reading beyond the textbooks which are plopped in front of them. That population is the homeschool crowd. And she says, the last time I checked, it's risen more than to more than 10% of the population. Now, those students have teachers who want them to learn and to grow and expand their intelligence so that they won't be servants of the system but leaders. Now, of course, not all parents are in a position to homeschool their kids, but that doesn't mean that those children are doomed to the life of an automaton in servitude to the state. No. She says parents who give their children good, solid books, not fluff, who read out loud to them, who gently lead them on to higher and better thinking through questions and conversations about what they read, these parents will slowly pull their children above gullibility. And the fewer gullible citizens this nation has the better off we'll all be. And she's right. Again, this is from Annie Holmquist. You'll find a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.